0: Chapter One Part Two of Zone Policeman Eighty Eight This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Zone Policeman Eighty Eight A Close Range Study of the Panama Canal and Its Workers by Harry A. Frank. Chapter One Part Two Police headquarters looked all but deserted on Friday morning. There had been something doing in zone criminal annals the night before, and not only the captain, but both the chief and the inspector, were somewhere out along the line. I sat down in the armchair against the wall. A half hour, perhaps, had I read, when Eddie—I am not entitled, perhaps, to such familiarity, but the solemn title of Chief Clark— is far too stiff and formal for that soul of good-heartedness striving in vain to hide behind a bluff exterior. Eddie, I say, blew a last cloud of smoke from his lungs to the ceiling, tossed aside the butt of his cigarette, and motioned to me to take the chair beside his desk. It's all off, said a voice within me, for the expression on Eddie's face was that of a man with an unpleasant duty to perform, and his opening words were in exactly that tone of voice in which a man begins, I am sorry, but had I not often used it myself? The captain, is how he really did begin, called me up from Cologne last night, and... Here's where I get my case, No proced, said, I found myself whispering. In all probability, that sealed document I had sent in the day before announced me as a physical wreck. And told me, continued Eddie in his sad, regretful tone, to tell you we will take you on the force as a first-class policeman... It happens, however, that the Department of Civil Administration is about to begin a census of the zone, and they are looking for any men that can speak Spanish. If we take you on, therefore, the captain would assign you to the census department until that work is done. It will probably take something over a month, and then you would be returned to regular police duty. The chief says he'd rather have you learn the isthmus on census than on police pay, Or, went on Eddie, just as I was about to break in with, all right, that suits me, or, if you prefer, the Census Department will enroll you as a regular enumerator, and we'll take you on the force as soon as that job is over. The, uh, pay, added Eddie, reaching for a cigarette, but changing his mind, of enumerators will be five dollars a day, and, uh, five a day beats 80 a month by more than a nose we descended a story, and I was soon in conference with a slender, sharp-faced young man of mobile features and penetrating eyes, behind which a smile seemed always to be lurking. On the canal zone, as in British colonies, one is frequently struck by the usefulness of men in positions of importance. "'I'll probably assign you to Empire District,' the slender young man was saying. "'There's everything up there, and almost any language will sure be some help to us.' This time we are taking a thorough, complete census of all the zone clear back to the zone line. Here's a sample card, and a list of instructions. In other words, kind Uncle Sam was about to give me authority to enter every dwelling in the most cosmopolitan and thickly populated district of his canal zone, and to put questions to every dweller therein, notebook and pencil in hand, authority to ramble around a month or more in sunshine and jungle, and paying me for the privilege. There are really two methods of seeing the canal zone, as an employee or as a guest of the Travoli, both of them at about five dollars a day, but at opposite ends of the thermometer. There remained a weekend between that Friday morning and the last day of January, set for the beginning of the census. Certainly I should not regret the arrival of the day when I should become an employee, with all the privileges and coupon books thereunto appertained, for the zone is no easy dwelling place for the non-employee, our worthy uncle of the chin-whiskers makes it quite plain that, while he may tolerate the mere visitor, he does not care to have him hanging around. Makes it so plain, in fact, that a few weeks purely of sight-seeing on the zone implies an adamantine financial backing. In his greened and full-provided towns, where the employee lives in such well-furnished comfort, the tourist might beat his knuckles bare and shake yellow gold in the other hand, and be coldly refused even a lodging for the night, and while he may eat a meal in the employee's hotels, at nearly twice the employee's price, the very attitude in which he is received says openly that he is admitted only on sufferance, permitted to eat only because if he starved to death our uncle would have the bother of burying him, and his own police the arduous toil of making out an accident report. Meanwhile I must change my dwelling-place, for the quartermaster of Corozal had need of all the rooms within his domain, Need so imperative that seventeen bona fide and WRATHY employees were even then bunking in the pool room of Corozal Hotel. Work on the zone was moving steadily Pacificward, and the accommodations refused to come with it, at least at the same degree of speed. Nor was I especially adverse to the transfer. The roommate with whom fate had cast me in House Eighty One was a pleasant enough fellow, a youth of unobjectionable personal manners. "'even though his eight-hour graft "'was in the sooty seat of a steam-crane "'high above Miraflores' locks. "'But he had one slight idiosyncrasy "'that might in time have grown annoying. "'On the night of our first acquaintance, "'after we had lain exchanging random experiences "'till the evening heat had begun a retreat "'before the gentle night breeze, "'I was awakened from the first doze "'by my companion sitting suddenly up "'in his cot across the room. "'Say, I hope you're not nervous,' he remarked. "'Not immoderately.' "'One of my stunts is Nightmare,' he went on, rising to switch on the electric light. "'And when I get him, I generally imagine my roommate is a burglar trying to go through my junk, and—' He reached under his pillow and brought to light a colt of forty-five caliber. Then, crossing the room, he pointed to three large, irregularly splintered holes on the wall some three or four inches above me, and which I had not seen simply because I had not chanced to look that way. "'There's the last three. But I'm trying to break myself of him, he concluded, slipping the revolver back under his pillow and turning off the light again. Which is among the various reasons why it was without protest that, with the captain's telephone consent, on the ground that I was now virtually on the force, I took up my residence in Corozal Police Station. Tis a peaceful little building of the usual zone type on a breezy knoll across the railroad, with a spreading tree and a little well-tended flower plot before it, and the broad world stretching away in all directions behind. Here lived Policeman T and B, first-class policemen, perhaps I should take care to specify, for in zone parlance the unqualified noun implies African ancestry, but it seems easier to use an adjective of color when necessary. Among their regular duties was that of weighing down the rocking chairs on the airy front veranda, whence each nook and cranny of Corozal was in sight, and of strolling across to greet the train-guard of the seven daily passengers, though the irregular ones that might burst upon them at any moment were not likely to resemble a moral expedition in the Philippines. B. and I shared the big main room, for T., being the haughty station commander, occupied the parlor suite beside the office. That was all, except a black Trinidadian boy who sat on the wooden shelf that was his bed behind a huge padlocked door and gazed dreamily out through the bars when he was not carrying a bundle to the train for his wardens, or engaged in the janitor duties that kept the Corozal station so spick and span. Oh, to be sure, there are also a couple of Negro policemen in the smaller room behind the thin wooden partition of our own, but Negro policemen scarcely count in zone police reckonings. By heck, they must use a lot of mules to haul about all that dirt, observed an Arkansas farmer to his nephew, home from the zone on vacation. He would have thought so indeed, could he have spent a day at Corozal, and watched the unbroken, deafening procession of dirt trains scream by on their way to the Pacific, straining moguls dragging a furlong of liquorwood flats, swaying all of her dumps with their side chains clanking, a succession as incessant of empties grinding back again into the midst of the fray. On the tail of every train lounged an American conductor, dressed more like a miner, though his front and hind negro brakemen were as apt to be in silk ties and patent leathers, to say nothing of the train-loads that go Atlanticward, and to jungle dumps, and to many an unnoticed fill. Then, when he had thus watched the day through, it would have been of interest to go and chat with some of the old-timers who live here beside the track, and who have seen, or at least heard, this same endless stream of rock and earth race by six days a week, fifty-two weeks a year for six years, as constant and heavily laden today as in the beginning. He might discover, as not all his fellow-countrymen have as yet, That THE LITTLE SURGICAL OPERATION ON MOTHER EARTH WE ARE ENGAGED IN IS NO mule JOB. THE WEEKEND GAVE ME TIME TO GET BACK IN TOUCH WITH AFFAIRS IN THE STATES AMONG THE NEWSPAPER FILES AT THE YMCA BUILDING. UNCLE SAM SURELY MAKES LIFE COMFORTABLE FOR HIS CHILDREN WHEREVER HE TAKES HOLD. IT IS NOT ENOUGH THAT HE SHALL CLEAN UP AND SET IN ORDER THESE TROPICAL PEST HOLES. HE WILL HAVE THE EMPLOYEE FANCY HIMSELF COMPLETELY AT HOME. HERE I SAT IN ONE OF THE DOZEN BIG AIRY RECREATION HALLS well-stocked with men's playthings, which the government has erected on the Zone. I, who two weeks before, had been thankful for lodging on the earth floor of a Honduran hut. The YMCA is the chief social centre on the Isthmus. The rendezvous and leisure hour headquarters of the thousands that inhabit bachelor quarters, except a few of the purely barroom type. Everybody's association, it might perhaps more properly be called, for ladies find welcome and the laughter of children over the parlor games is rarely lacking it is not the circumspect place that are many of its type in the states but a real man's place where he can buy his cigarettes and smoke his pipe in peace a place for men as men are not as the fashion-plates that mamma's fond imagination pictures them with all its excellences it would be unjust to complain that the zone y m is a trifle lowbrow in its tastes that the books on its shelves are apt to be popular novels rather than a reading matter that its phonographs are most frequently screeching vaudeville noises while the Slezak and Homer discs lie tucked away far down near the bottom of the stack. With a new week I moved to Empire, the rules and regulations in a pocket, and the most indispensable of my possessions under an arm. Once more we rumbled through the milliflory's tunnel through a molehill, past her concrete lighthouse among the astonished palms, and a giant hose of water wiping away the rock hills, across the trestleless bridge with its photographic glimpses of the canal before and behind for the limberneck and again I found myself in the metropolis of the canal zone. At the quartermaster's office, my application for quarters was duly filed without a word, and a slip assigning me to room 3, house 47, as silently returned. I climbed, by a stone-faced U.S. road, to my new home on the slope of a ridge overlooking the railway and its buildings below. It was the noon hour. My two roommates, therefore, were on hand for inspection, sprawlingly engrossed in a quite innocent and legal card-game on a table littered with tobacco pipes matches dog-eared wads of every species of literature from real-estate pamphlets to locomotive journals and a further mass of indiscriminate matter that none but a professional inventory man would attempt to classify about the room was the usual clutter of all manner of things in the usual unarranged unwomaned zone way which the negro janitor feels it neither his duty nor privilege to bring to order while on and about my cot and bureau where helter-skeltered the sundry possessions of an absent employee who had left for his six weeks' vacation without hanging up his shirt after the fashion of zoners. So when I had wiped away the dust that had been gathering thereon since the days of de Lesseps, and chucked my odds and ends into a bureau drawer, I was settled, a full-fledged zone employee in the quarters to which every man on the gold roll is entitled free of charge. Just here it may be well to explain that the I.C.C., has very dexterously dodged the necessity of lining the zone with the offensive signs black and white. It would not be exactly the distinction desired anyway. Hence the line has been drawn between gold and silver employees. The first division, paid in gold coin, is made up, with a few exceptions, of white American citizens. To the second belong any of the darker shade and all common laborers of whatever color, these receiving their wages in Panamanian silver. "'Tis a deep and sharp-drawn line.' The story runs that Lizza Lawson, not long arrived from Jamaica, entering the office of his own dentist, paused suddenly before the announcement, work, gold and silver fillings, extractions wholly without pain.' There was a deep disappointment in face and voice as she sat down with a flounce of her starched and snow-white skirt, gasping, "'Ah, oh, doctor, does I have to have silver fillings?' My roommates, Mitch and Tom, sat respectively at the throttle of a locomotive that jerked dirt trains out of the cut and straddled a steam shovel that ate its way into Calabra range. Whence, of course, they were covered with the grease and grime incident to those occupations, which did not make them any the less companionable, though it did promise a distinct increase in my laundry bill. When they had descended again to the labor train and been snatched away to their appointed tasks, I sat a short hour in one of the black mission rocking chairs on the screened veranda puzzling over a serious problem. The quarters of the gold employee is as completely furnished as any reasonable man could demand, his iron cot with springs and mattress unimpeachable. But just there, the maternal generosity of the government ceases. He must furnish his own sheets and pillow. Must, because placards on the wall sternly warn him not to sleep on the bare mattress and the New York Sunday edition that had served me thus far I had carelessly left behind at Corozal Police Station. To be sure, there were sheets for sale in Empire, at the commissary, where money has the purchasing power of cobblestones, and coupon books come only to those who have worked a day or more on the zone. Then the Jamaican janitor, drifting in to potter about the room, evidently guessed the cause of my perplexity, for he turned to point at the bed of the absent Mitch and gurgled, "'Just you make love to dat man what got dat bed. Him got plenty of sheets,' which proved a wise suggestion. Empire Hotel sat a bit down the hill. There, the gold ranks were again subdivided. The coatless ate and sweltered inside the great dining room. The formal sat in haughty state in what was virtually a second-story veranda overlooking the rail yards in a part of the town, where were tables of four, electric fans, and Ben to serve with butler formality. I found it worth while to climb the hill for my coat thrice a day. As yet, I was jangling down a Panamanian dollar at each appearance, but the day was not far distant when I should receive the recruit's hotel book and soon grow as accustomed to the rest as having a coupon snatched from it by the yellow negro at the door. Uncle Sam's boarding scale in the zone is widely varied. Three meals cost the non employee a dollar fifty, the gold employee ninety cents, the white European laborer. 40 cents, and Negroes in general, 30 cents. That afternoon, when the sun had begun to bow its head on the thither side of the canal, I climbed to the newly labeled census office on the knoll behind the police station, from the piazza of which all native empire lies within sweep of the eye. The boss, a smiling youth only well started on his third decade, whose regular duties were in the sanitary department, had already moved bed, bag, and baggage into the room that had been assigned the census. That he might be always on the job. Not until eight that evening, however, did the force gather to look itself over. There was the commander-in-chief of the Census Bureau, sent down from Washington specifically for the task in hand, under whom, as chairman, we settled down into a sort of director's meeting, a wholly informal, coatless, cigarette-smoking meeting in which even the chief himself did not feel it necessary to let his dignity weigh upon him. He had been sent down alone, Hence, there had been great scrambling to gather together on the zone men enough who spoke Spanish, and with no striking success. Most noticeable of my fellow enumerators, being in uniform, were three marines from Obispo, fluent with the working Spanish they had picked up from Mondano to Puerto Rico, and flushed cheeked with the prospect of a full month on pass, to say nothing of the four dollars and forty cents a day which would be added to their daily military income of sixty cents. Then there were four of the darker hue, Panamadians and West Indians, and how rare our Spanish-speaking Americans on the zone was proved by the admittance of such complexions to the gold roll. Of native U.S. citizens there were but two of us, of whom Barter, speaking only his nasal New Jersey, must perforce be assigned to the gold quarters, leaving me the native town of Empire, at which we were both satisfied, Barter because he did not like to sully himself by contact with foreigners. I, because one need not travel clear to the canal zone to study the way of Americans. As for the other seven, each was assigned his strip of land something over a mile wide and five long, running back to the western boundary of the zone. That region of wilderness known as Beyond the Canal was to be left for special treatment later. The zone had been divided for census purposes into four sections, with headquarters and supervisor in Ancon, Empire, Gorgona, and Cristobal, respectively. Our district, stretching from the trestleless bridge over the canal to a great tree near Basobispo, was easily the fat of the land, the most populous, most cosmopolitan, and embracing within its limits the greatest task on the zone. Meanwhile, we had fallen to studying the Instructions to Enumerators, the very first article of which was such as to give pause and reflection. When you have once signed on as enumerator, you cannot cease to exercise your functions as such without justifiable cause under penalty of five hundred dollar fine. Which warning was quickly followed by the hair-raising announcement, If you set down the name of a fictitious person, what can have given the good census department the notion of such a possibility, you will be fined two thousand dollars, or sentenced to five years imprisonment, or both. From there on, the injunctions grew less nerve-wracking. You must use a medium soft black pencil, which will be furnished. Law-breaking under such conditions would be absurdity, use no diddle marks and here i could not but shudder as there passed before my eyes memories of college lecture rooms and all the strange marks that have come to mean something to me alone take pains to write legibly then we rose and swarmed upstairs to an empty courtroom, where judge g throwing away his cigarette and removing his iowa feet from the bar of justice caused us each to raise a right hand and swear an oath as solemn as ever president on march fourth an oath i repeat not merely to uphold and defend the Constitution against all enemies, armed or armless, but furthermore, not to share with any one any of the information you gather as an enumerator, or show a census card, or keep a copy of same. Yet I trust I can spin this simple yarn of my Canal Zone days without offense to Uncle Sam against the day when, mayhap, I shall have occasion to apply to him again for occupation. For that reason I shall take abundant care to give no information whatsoever in the following pages." End of chapter 1, part 2. Recording by Todd.